Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Roundtable, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers and investors in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion that we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Now, here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup-Larsen. Welcome back to Top Traders Roundtable, a podcast series on managed futures brought to you by CME Group, where our guest host today, Ranjan Baduri, continues his conversation with Jonathan Miles, John Fiddler, and Christopher vote where they discuss how managed futures should fit into your portfolio allocation and why you should still believe in these strategies even if it's been a few challenging years so without further ado let's rejoin the conversation so going back to some of what jonathan stated about risk premia and alternative beta and agreed uh, there are cheaper ways to get trend following today and that's had an impact on the entire managed futures fee structure even including managers that are not doing trend following and it's also forcing a lot of trend followers to to adapt or be left behind right like in in terms of adapt in terms of offering more competitive fees and increasing their products, suite of products, so new types of programs or trying to explore via other other techniques. But the short-term CTAs mentioning about the alpha decay is also a very interesting comment there because that's that's lasted for, you know, in some ways the empirical evidence seems to suggest that short-term CTAs have a shorter lifespan than trend-following CTAs. And, and that the corollary of that is that it might be more challenging in identifying a quality short-term CTA from an investment lens. Are any of you looking at short-term CTAs? And if so, what, what are the kinds of things that you look for? That's a little granular for us in terms of, of what we do. We might look at them periodically, but we don't actively allocate in, to that level of granularity in the space. Yeah, I'd say, I'd say currently we don't really either because I think I'm sort we're sort of in a similar situation to, to Jonathan where we're building you know a very you know broad portfolio of of betas and and hopefully alphas across different asset classes and you know hedge funds are just a small piece and then managed futures is even a smaller piece and you know at a given time we may have an allocation to you know depending on how you define short term you know one or two short-term CTAs, but it's, it's not an area I focus on now. In a prior life, I allocated at a family office for about 10 years to managers and I allocated to a lot of short-term CTAs. And I have to say, we almost never made money investing with them. And I think it was because of the alpha decay factor you're talking about. I can sort of count on one hand the number of you know really good investment experiences I had with, with short-term CTAs. And I do think it's, you know, 
it's just a lot harder to get right. It's it's more susceptible to curve fitting the barriers to entry for new guys because of transaction costs and speed of execution are much higher. I was talking to a equity manager yesterday, actually, who's launching a fund and he's kind of a stock picker type guy, you know, three to six month holds. And his, the point that he made was he thought that, you know, beyond three to six months, machines were pretty good at picking winners because they had quarters and quarters and quarters of price data and financial data to look at and that under you know about a week machines were better at picking winners than people and his view was which i think is probably true but his view that was that you know in all assets the sort of under 3 day period is kind of owned by or holding period is sort of owned by the the citadels and the renaissances and the two sigmas and that those guys have a moat because of all this huge amount of technology spend and and brain power that they have. So I think, you know, for the vast majority of CTAs who do not have that budget and that scale, it's a really hard thing to to make work. So it often goes in, you know, you spoke about machine learning earlier and I know there's a lot of talk about that. For us, those strategies kind of go in the too hard to evaluate pile for the most part. Got it. Got it. So we also touched upon fees with the, you know, uh, with the corollary of the alternative beta. And you mentioned 50 basis points. One can get some some trend following beta. How innovative or or not, like uh, in terms of the fees in general, and it doesn't have to be limited to managed futures. Have you seen, you know, the fee compression today as opposed to, say, five years ago or three years ago? Well, I think we've seen a lot of innovative fee structures just in the last few years, right? Not only are fees coming down, but people are trying to improve alignment of interest between the investors and the managers, right? Think about, I think, is it Texas Tech did the one or 30 approach? Alborn is sort of advocating that as well. But I've, I've also, you know, that didn't really, that didn't grow that widely. Managers were willing to do it for Alborn clients, but not other clients necessarily. And I've seen a few CTA managed account-based managers create some more unique structures as well around sort of fee sharing across a portfolio of managers. So sort of a, more of a, a co-op approach, right? Sort of all these managers are in it together and if they all do well, they get paid. But if they don't do well as a group, they don't get paid. So, you know, it ultimately, the, the, they're, they're like people are adding complexity to try to solve an, uh, an issue of fees to being too high. And probably what will happen is we'll end up, you know, eventually coming back to a more normalized plain vanilla approach and fees will just be lower, right? So take away the complexity and you'll just – people, everybody understands management fees and incentive fees. Let's just set it in, in such a way that people won't complain. Investors, excuse me, will feel that it's fair, right? So that that's just sort of my two cents. We'll see how it sort of plays out over time. Got it. That's 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 interesting. And in terms of just going back to the portfolio construction, what are some of the techniques that you're using? And this is beyond managed futures. Just in terms of are you are you doing like risk budgeting? Are you doing vol adjusted? How are you building your portfolios? So on the on the portfolio management side, we actually have a risk management asset allocation team here. And they do the uh, asset allocation kind of work for us. We're in the on side of 
strategies uh, as, as if those allocations are set. Again, going back to my comments about, I think there's it, it can be very challenging in, in, in managed futures. I, I particularly like a, a low management fee or a zero management fee and a high performance fee. At my previous employer, we did some studies and looked at this, and the, the break on uh, 2 and 20 versus is 0 and 35, so 2% management fee, 20% performance, and a 0% management fee and a 35, 35% is somewhere in the 20, around 20%. So in other words, you unless the manager is going to generate over 20%, you're better off in a, in a 0 and 35 strategy, um, or 0 and 35 fee structure. So that's kind of where we see it. And as I mentioned before, we feel as the trend has become very commoditized. There's a, a host of products, which I think some of them have already been mentioned today, that, that those fees have come down quite a bit. Uh, in that space. Yeah, I'd agree with Christopher. You know, we tend to, when it comes to fees, uh, you know, my view, our view is that, you know, a zero and deal, or at least you know, lower management fee, higher incentive fee is a better alignment of interest. Now I've heard you know, the, the, the opposite argument would be, well, you know, it gives a manager incentive to take, you know, sort of undue risk. And if they have, you know, a couple great years, you know, they're, 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 they're risking your money, not theirs, and they only share in the upside and not in the downside. Maybe that's true, but I don't think there's many, hopefully your due diligence process is, is going to be good enough to weed out people who are intellectually dishonest enough that that's the way they're thinking about the business. And, and luckily in managed futures, unlike in a lot of discretionary strategies, you know, strategies are taking a constant risk level. It's not like they're going to, you know, you don't have the same sort of maverick risk you might have in like a discretionary commodity fund or something. So we're big believers in, you know, focus on the incentive fees and that better aligns interests. Yeah, no, I mean, fees, absolutely. The, the managers that become asset gatherers and just are just enjoying life in, in by clipping coupons and having a management fee and not really striving for for the alpha is detrimental to anybody's book. In terms of discretionary versus systematic for managers in general, behavioral bias was something that was touched upon much earlier in, a, in, 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 in this podcast. Do you have views? Are, are you, do you prefer one or over the other? You're open to both the way that it fits into your portfolios. Uh, what are, what are your thoughts? Well, it's certainly been a very tough space, similar to systematic, right? I mean, it, it, over the last few years, and it's always so trying as an investor to meet with really, and we're talking about discretionary macro here, is is you meet with some really smart people who clearly have a great understanding of the global economy, yet they can't make any money. Right, so it kind of calls into question what it takes to be good at that in that role, and or are we in a market environment that's very difficult for people who think that way and understand things the way they used to be to make money? And I think one person mentioned earlier, you know, we've essentially been in a you know central bank uh, monetization period for a decade, right? It has been one of the worst decades on record for macro strategies. Well, it's also been one of the best decades on record for equities or, or one of the near one of the best ones or a very good one. So in order to like the space in general and to like discretionary in general, you have to be a little bit of a contrarian. So I think that's when you when you ask the question, I got a little bit uneasy because I've 
really liked managers and had a lot of conviction in their ability to understand and uh, what drives different markets and yet they still don't make money. So I think that's, it's, it's one of those, I might wait a little bit though. I do before I allocate though. I do think if the central banks start drinking their balance sheets, a lot of things should get back to the way we kind of understood them pre 2010 and 11. Right. So maybe pre 2008, but so that's sort of where it's a little, it's a little uncomfortable right now to, to make allocations into that space. I, I agree with those comments. I built a macro, a specific just macro portfolio of my former employer, and it was a blend of systematic as well as discretionary. And some of the you know famous, most intelligent people uh, out there are running those portfolios. And I found the exercise to be one of the most frustrating things that I've ever done in my professional life. And uh, I would only, <laughs> and I would go further and say that I would only wish that effort on on, on my worst enemy today. Um, so far as Given the environment with very low vol, even though we have had some uptick in the past 14, 15 months, it's still a very low vol environment. It's still very affected by the movements of central banks. And I feel as if it's just uh, it's a lot of wind in the face of, of macro strategies as a result. Uh, as you mentioned, as, as liquidity comes out of the system and as we normalize, macro could become much more interesting. But until that time, I think it, it's going to be a lot of headwind for those strategies. Ranjan, I, I had you had asked me earlier about asset allocation. I'm not sure if it was, it was discussed yet, but uh, the, the role of alternatives in the portfolio. Can I talk a little Please bit about do. that? Please do. Yes, no, that's. Uh, I did ask about that. I'd love love for you to to comment on that, please. Sure. So I, I just have a couple comments to make. Is that I, I kind of say like, uh, what are what are alternatives? And I uh, and I, I think that that term alternatives is a historical construct, uh, and I think it referred to or refers to private equity, hedge funds, managed futures, et cetera. But I, I, I don't really like that because of it, it's really, in my opinion, just a historical construct. I, I wrote a paper several years back now called Hedge Funds Are Not an Asset Class, Institutional Implications for Institutional Portfolios. And in there, we talk about basically that many hedge fund strategies have betas and they actually need to be placed into the categories, which is a construct we've, we've incorporated here at the philanthropies. So equity long short, has equity beta in it typically and should be placed into an equity portfolio. Uh, particularly when you run asset allocation, mean variance uh, optimizations, it's important that you bucket in those in those categories. So I would say that alternatives are not long only equity and not long credit. And I would put private equity in that bucket insofar as it's a typically Great. long strategy. So you know, in terms of what are alternatives, I would actually say they're macro. Uh, managed futures, uh, maybe convertible ARB, maybe some fixed income relative value, maybe equity market neutral, maybe merger ARB, basically things that have low or no structural premium or betas uh, attached to them. So I, I think insurance would be another one then under that definition. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, or short sellers, things like that. The, the thing that I, I can't answer is, you know, what's the desirable allocation to these? I think that's a very difficult problem to solve for. And it starts with the utility function of the investor. And likewise, you know, what's the desirable exposure to managed futures or to hedge funds? Again, it depends on if it's, if it is just a managed futures portfolio or if you're going to include the high net long hedged equity, that that's a much harder thing. What I do think you need to do is look through all of that and try to judge or estimate or, or study or measure 
how much equity beta, how much rate duration, how much spread duration, et cetera, you're allocating to. So I, I want to basically ask a wild card question in the sense that I want each of you to give a nugget of wisdom or insight. All of you have you know, tremendous experience, expertise in, in the investment space. And, and just to try to, you know, to somebody who's coming into the space new, say somebody, him or her, what would you tell a young professional today? That's something that maybe you learned the hard way or maybe, you know, it's just, just through your experience. And does anybody want to volunteer to go first? I, I tried to, I tried to, I, I tried to spread that question out long to give you time to think. <laughs> just, just for the listeners out there, these three panelists uh, for this podcast were very sportsmanlike in the sense that I did not give them any kind of pre-call, practice call. So uh, all these questions are sort of, it's being on, done on the fly. I have a, I, I have a couple of things. Uh, this is Christopher. I, I would say the first thing would is to, I would urge people to be cynical. And, and what I mean by that is Wall Street is about product creation, not about performance. And so I would be very wary of most investable products. They're often designed to collect fees and to generate fees. And they are sometimes never, and many of those products have come and gone and have died and nobody's the wiser of it, but I would be highly cynical. One key metric there is how much capital is alongside that the, that the manager or the portfolio manager or the general partner, how much capital are they actually putting in that strategy to ride alongside your investment? The other thing I would say is number two would be most of my mistakes or the, the big mistakes I've made have been in sizing the investment. And so far as you can make investments and you're going to make some that are great, some that are just good and some that are terrible or not so great. But if you size those uh, those investments correctly, you won't experience a really bad event. Uh, so be careful with your sizing. And then the third is, it's a I think it's a Mark Twain quote, and I won't get it perfectly right, but it's... Um, it's not what you know for sure that will kill you. It's what you think you know for sure that just ain't so. So be be very cautious and, uh, <laughs> That's bad. and be self-aware. Self-awareness is a big one too, so that might be a fourth. That's very, very true. And pessimists only get pleasant surprises, so the cynical comment is definitely a good one as well. John, do you want to you want to go next? Oh, gosh. I don't really have any pearls of wisdom. Those were good, Chris. I guess in ter- specifically in terms of evaluating managed futures managers, so so a very narrow kind of, kind of idea is I'll often hear people ask managers, you know, how, how do your models work? And to me, that isn't a question that makes a lot of sense because every good model should do the same thing. It should buy low and sell high or reverse or the opposite, right? You know, sell high and buy low. It would be to ask, you know, why your models work and what is the driver behind them, the intuitive driver behind them. And if there isn't an explanation for that, then I, I'd be skeptical. And, and and then the other concept, I think that would exp- go past managed futures and into, into other investments and, and it's probably related to what Christopher was saying about being cynical, but there's an allure to complexity in everything, whether it's a business model or a portfolio. You know, if you look at 
you know, some big macro fund and they have 40,000 line items, you know, there's a, there's an automatic intelligence that's, that's assumed when you see something that's really complex like that, or, or tends to be assumed to me, in my experience, at least, you know, the portfolios that had the most problems where there were unforeseen risks were always portfolios where there was some sort of hidden, you know, kind of negative gamma, you know, maybe explicitly through options or maybe just explicitly through through some relative value positioning or, that, you know, there was some concentrated risk that wasn't obvious because of the complexity of the portfolio. So, you know, simplicity can be can be a good thing. I definitely think those are those are wise statements. So yeah, I mean that's I've got a really high hurdle here to add something <laughs> to both of those because those are really good. The first thing that came to mind is sometimes the most important decision isn't necessarily a financial or investment one. And this is specifically when you're working with with clients and in Sometimes the most impactful decision isn't necessarily whether you pick the right manager or make the right investment. It's the is the premise behind your decision making process correct, right? And and, I, and so I think that gets to one of Christopher's comments about always question your assumptions or always make sure you understand the embedded assumptions in whatever viewpoint you have because they have to exist, right? And if you don't understand them, then you're bound to make a mistake. So that was uh, that was the first one. The be cynical was Christopher took that one. That was always mine too. And then I have a list of sort of co- phrases that I like to keep in in the one that I always like to use when I'm talking to people or or, or working with with interns and things things is don't let perfection be the enemy of the good, right? Sometimes an answer that's good enough right now is better than perfection later. That's that's well said. All of that is well said. I mean, the three of you have really, I, I'm glad I asked this question because I think that the every one of those statements was very good. I mean, and, and it's also themes that are, that are coming, you know, that, uh, that I've, I've experienced the, the perfection one. I sort of have a similar phrase, you know, don't try to build the Picasso to begin with, right? Like if you're right. just always trying <laughs> to go for perfection and you then don't get anything done. It's let's let's just try to get something good and then keep trying to improve that and set the bar higher and higher. But that's usually a more productive way to go about it. The cynical one is good. And and, and Jonathan, the one that you said before, the perfection one, uh, um, oh, the model risk, basically understanding the assumptions. And, and that's 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 tremendously. I think that that's a risk. Model risk is something that's very much underestimated by a lot of folks. And, and so doing that, and it reminds me of, a, of, of what Richard Feynman, the late Richard Feynman Nobel laureate and uh, physicist had stated, the American physicist, that the easiest person to fool is yourself. And so, you know, it's, it's very important to be questioning yourself and not fooling yourself. So, and that also ties back into the behavioral biases and so forth. So, before we hand it back to, to Niels, I just want to also, you know, not be greedy or selfish and just, you know, give all three of you an opportunity to address any other topic or question. Like you can just make any other statement that you want that I, I didn't ask because, again, I want it to be where I, I think that the CME and, and Niels have done a great job in getting you all together. So I want to make sure that we're extracting the maximum 
uh, opportunity here. Is there anything else any of you wanted to stake to to the audience? Hey, Ron, John, uh, there was one thing. I, I think I actually misquoted the, the Mark Twain quote. It, it's, it's, it goes, it's not what you don't know that will kill you. It's what you think you know for sure. And I think I maybe said it's what you know. So I think I, I misquoted that. And then the other thing I was going to make is just a kind of a funny comment on the whole model risk. And that is uh, a former colleague of mine, very bright guy, PhD level. He said to me once with respect to models, he said, you know, a model, we call it a model. And, and by definition, it's false because it's, it's, it's fake. I should say it's because hmm. it's a model. And it reminds me of when I was a little boy and I used to build model airplanes. And I said that to him and he said, yeah, he said, and nobody's going to sit in the model airplane and try to fly it. <laughs> and so I think that's something that's uh, important to keep in mind. No, absolutely. And like with model risk, I will also state this, uh, is that model risk, it's always there, just as you just stated. Uh, by definition, like uh, the, the uh, no model is perfect and there's always going to be model risk. But model risk gets magnified if it's an illiquid investment. And, and the reason for that is just if it's exchange traded, there are no accounting issues, there's no valuation issues. And Basically, whatever, if the model's inaccurate, it's getting caught like the markets and in the P&L because everything's marked to market and you can't hide. But the model risk can be more hidden when it's illiquid. And, and an example of that was the great financial crisis in 2008 with mortgage-backed securities. There was a lot of model risk in some of those MBS uh, strategies and it didn't get, it took a long time before it got exposed. So it's just an, another advantage with regards to liquid and exchange traded instruments, strategies that involve that. But for any of the others, are there any other statements that you'd like to make for, uh, again, and Chris, you're welcome to state more. Yeah, this is Jonathan. I'll just clarify. I made a comment earlier about being a believer in these strategies and in, in systematic macro strategies. Uh-huh. But it kind of begs the question, why? I didn't really answer that question. And, and so, because this, this came up, this comes up a lot, and it came up at the conference a few, a few weeks ago, which is, well, why do you believe in a strategy that's done so poorly for so long, right? And I think we explained a little bit about the macro environment being wrong, but there's also the, a comment that I like to make, which is the players may change, but human behavior doesn't, right? And most of these strategies are designed to take advantage of human behavioral biases, so as long as we're human and, and humans are the ones driving the market, then there will be opportunities for systematic macro strategies. That, that's a belief of, of mine. And it, you know, all you have to do is look at what happened in December and January, you know, January of this year or December of last year, to say, okay, well, if the market were truly efficient, things like that wouldn't happen, right? So that, to me, is why I still believe in these strategies and that poor performance that we've seen is actually, you know, a three or four standard deviation event, right? And so I'm willing to say, you know, I'm, I'm a contrarian by nature. So I'm saying I'm willing to bet against the three. I'm willing to bet that the three or four standard deviation event is a, is a good signal for things to be different in the future. So, yeah, I'd agree with, I'd agree with that as well, Jonathan, you know, these things are all cyclical and, you know, we went, I remember a period in, you know, 06, 07, hearing exactly the same thing that, you know, trend following was in currencies was a strategy that just didn't work and you had to trade carry. And then, you know, 2008 was a phenomenal year for you know, probably the best year ever for trend following in currencies and rates. So, 
And I think it's also important to remember, you know, we talk about all of these hedge fund asset classes as though they're, or not we, but, you know, there's a temptation to talk about them as though they're extremely homogenous and certainly all, you know, trend following CTAs are relatively homogenous, but within the managed future space, you know, quantitative macro space, there's all types of strategies. You know, there's the, the index, I don't think has made a new equity high since 2014. Is that right? But there's plenty of managers within, you know, not within that index necessarily, but within the space that have made money every year since 2014. So, you know, manager selection and, and picking the right people and, and the right models is, is important and a big deal. So yeah, that would be my last comment. Wow. Thank you to all of you, to Jonathan, John, and Chris. Thank you for um, those uh, listening and to Niels and the CME group for putting this all together. And I, I do encourage you to go to the CME website where they have an excellent educational center for, with a lot of information and also to encourage you to listen to other podcasts that Niels has put together. So Niels, I will hand it back to you and I, I thank all, all of the uh, panelists again. Cheers. And there you have it. Thank you so much, Ranjan, Jonathan, Chris and John for a great and insightful conversation about alternative investments, why you should still believe in them, but also some of the challenges we have in this space at the moment. I hope you were able to take a lot of useful information from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues and send us a comment to let us know what topics you want us to bring up in the upcoming conversations with industry leaders in Managed Futures. From me, Niels Karsblasen and our sponsor CME Group, thanks so much for listening and I look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Roundtable. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes or SoundCloud and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review on iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Roundtable.